Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is for the record program number 1267. Interview number six with Gene DiEugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 14th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my Pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airways Jim Diagenio, as mentioned, the author of JFK Revisited, and also the gentleman who was selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for JFK Revisited, the documentary, which is available in both a two-hour version and a, an expanded four-hour version in both regular DVD and in Blu-ray. And Jim is the author-editor of a book by the same name. So you can uh, consume the material in a variety of ways. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Thank you, Dave. All right, well, let's plunge right back in where we were at the conclusion of our last uh, interview. And that is with Freeport. And we were talking about Indonesia. If you would briefly recap for us how uh, the Freeport Company intersects with Indonesia and the post-1965 economic and political landscape there. All right. What happened was that once Castro had essentially kicked out Freeport from Cuba, all right, and had essentially nationalized things like Moa Bay Mining Company, a subsidiary of the company, they began to explore getting into Indonesia because one of their foremost engineers had uncovered a book about a Dutch journey to these two, uh, these mountain range that housed something called the Grassberg and the Erzberg. The Grassberg and the Erzberg, they had already tested some of the mineral deposits there. And they decided it was a very, very good investment. All right. And so Freeport decided to send another expedition there. The first expedition, I think, was in the 30s. All right. And they came back with the same result. All right. And so they now began to go ahead and plan for setting up mining, except there was one problem, namely Sukarno. They didn't want to have to deal with Sukarno because they knew that he would want a very large cut, you know, of whatever they took out of these two incredible mines. All right. And so they bided their time and they then went ahead and decided that once Suharto had taken power and overthrown Sukarno, they were going to be one of the first people to sign a contract with the new government. And I believe that was 67 or 68. Now, if you recall what I said before, Kennedy wanted, at the very least, a 50-50 split, okay, between the company and the government. 
Suharto settled for 90-10 in favor of Freeport. Okay. That shows you right then and there how Suharto didn't give a damn about how much money was going to come into the government coffers. He was going to go ahead and get rich himself. All right. I don't think anything can exemplify what a difference it made. Freeport then became Freeport Map Moran, which I believe was one of the top two mining companies in the world at one time for a long period of time. That is 70s, 80s, and 90s. Okay, they relocated to Texas. All right, I think, believe Austin. All right, and the it was almost unimaginable the kind of money they were taking out of Indonesia. I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that it was literally in the billions of dollars, not tens of millions, not hundreds of millions, but literally billions of dollars were taken out of those two mines. Because what had happened is they found out that either by hook or by crook, the geological study that was done was incorrect. That the geological study said the predominant resource was copper. It was not. It was gold. Okay. The predominant resource was gold. There were massive amounts of gold in the Erzberg and uh, the Friesberg. Okay. And this, of course, greatly multiplied the amount of wealth that was taken out of those two mines. I believe one of them is still operating to this day. You know, and this is, you're talking 50 years after Freeport went in there. All right. And the abuses that Freeport has visited on Papua in both environmental, okay, and also human rights abuses have been a true, a true disgrace. And, um, I wrote about these, uh, in, in more than, uh, one spot. I think I did it in JFK assassination, the evidence today. All right. And I also did it in the afterword to Greg Paul Grain's book. Um, you know, Battleground Indonesia, JFK versus Alan Dulles. I wrote a 15 page afterward for that book and I included all of these human rights abuses and environmental abuses that Freeport has visited on, on Papua. Now, one last word I want to talk about. What that book does, Greg Polgrain's book, is it shows that what what happened on the night of, I believe it's September the 30th, 1965, the overthrow of Sukarno was a very intelligently mapped out operation and which, and the crime was not solved till decades later when some of the people who were imprisoned got out of prison. I think this is around the time of the fall of Suharto, which was in the 90s. Greg Paul Green interviewed 
one of the guys who got out. And the, the occasion for the overthrow was that they feared there was going to be a coup against Sukarno. All right. And they went ahead, this group of, I believe, colonels, all right, and they wanted to abduct the people who they thought were going to be involved in the abduction of Sukarno. It was never supposed to be, they were never supposed to kill these guys. They were supposed to go ahead and bring them before Sukarno so he could question them. What this guy told Greg Polgrain once he got out of prison, he said, literally, Suharto switched sides. Suharto was on our side. Okay. And then the night of the overthrow, he switched sides. He had this all planned out in advance because he knew exactly what to do on that night. All right. And he commandeered the killing of the generals, okay, and then the mass slaughter against the PKI, all right? That's why I did the afterword for that book, because I thought that he had the best explanation of what really happened on the night of September 30th, 1965. Very quickly, before we proceed, the name of the book, and if you would spell the author's last name for us. Yeah, Greg Polgrain, P-O-U-L, G-R-A-I-N. And the name of the book is Battleground Indonesia. All right. John Kennedy versus Alan Dulles. And there is an afterword by yourself. Yes. I wrote a 15 page afterword. Probably a little bit of overkill. And Oliver, well, Oliver wrote the, uh, the prologue about a four or five page prologue. All right, be very good. Uh, that's the term overkill is, is, <laughs> ironic, uh, yeah, a, a very poor choice of words. <laughs> yes, no doubt. Now, uh, the name Freeport, uh, is one that bridges one area of negation of Kennedy's policies, namely Cuba, to another Indonesia. Let's go back to Cuba. Uh, JFK was confronted with or presented with a covert operation, the Bay of Pigs, almost as soon as he was in office. If you would tell us about the Bay of Pigs, and in particular, in the documentary, David Talbot has some observations about the plan by the CIA for the Bay of Pigs and what Alan Dulles thought that would commit Kennedy to doing. Yes. Um, in the interval between Eisenhower and Kennedy, the operation changed from what was supposed to be a massive guerrilla infiltration of guerrillas onto the island to what Dick Bissell called a strike force kind of operation. When Kennedy saw this thing, uh, he immediately didn't like it because to him, uh, it looked too much like what he said, a World War II type of operation. And he did not want this. It, it relied upon 
knocking out Castro's Air Force. And this included what was called a D-Day airstrike. That is, on the morning of the operation, if there was anything left, okay, of Castro's Air Force, these dawn raids would knock them out. Well, Kennedy didn't like that aspect. And so he cut back on the first airstrike, and then he said, I only want an airstrike on D-Day if we've secured a beachhead. I want it to come from inside Cuba. There's so much evidence about this now that it's kind of ridiculous. All right. Um, there's about four sources on this that I used in Destiny Betrayed. All right. Um, so Kennedy reserved the right to recall the invasion force all the way up to about 18 hours before the scheduled operation. All right. And, but he didn't. He didn't. And then what happened was that because they could not secure a beachhead, because they could not find an airstrip, and there was one on that part of the island, okay, because they couldn't secure it, Castro's Air Force was controlling the sky, all right? And plus, there were all kinds of problems. Like one of the big ammunition ships floated up on a reef and sunk. Okay. All right. And so what happened is that by about the first 24 hours, the first 24 hours, and certainly the first 36 hours, Castro was able to get all kinds of armor, mortars, and cannons to the front. All right. And, and the other reason he was able to do this was not just because it got stalled at the beachhead, because he had infiltrators inside the Guatemalan camps. Okay. And plus the place where they, um, landed, the CIA said there were no patrols there. Okay. At the Bay of Pigs. Well, there was a patrol there and it was that guy, that policeman who alerted Castro right off the bat that they were landing there. All right. And so it turned into a debacle. And so when, when there was an investigation inside the White House, Bobby Kennedy cross-examined Alan Dulles. And he came to the conclusion that Dulles knew that this was going to fail. He knew it never had a chance of success. All right. And that he had deceived his brother about by saying there's going to be all kinds of people coming over to our side. Okay. It's going to be a complete surprise to Castro. He won't be able to get his armor to the front. Okay. Within the first 48 hours, we'll have a couple of days. This all turned out to be baloney. And Robert Kennedy concluded that it was meant as a deception. And when he, one of the most telling questions he asked was, what was the fallback plan in case the strike force failed? And Dulles said, well, we were going to go guerrilla. Now, 
Bobby Kennedy knew that this was out now, baloney, because if they were going to go gorilla, they had to cross a swamp that was something like 50 miles wide from the Bay of Pigs to get to the mountain area. And when he examined one of the Cuban exiles, who he called to the stand, he asked him, did you get any guerrilla training? And he said, no, we never had guerrilla training. So when Bobby Kennedy heard this, he told his brother that I don't think there's any way out of this except firing these guys. They deliberately deceived you. But he went further than that. He called in on the recommendation of his father, Joseph Kennedy. He called in Robert Lovett, who had been the former Secretary of Defense and had been one of the uh, on the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board in the 50s. And Robert Lovett and David Bruce, an illustrious kind of uh, diplomat, had written a report in, I think, 1958. And they, at that time, it's called the Lovett-Bruce Report, they recommended to Eisenhower that they fire Alan Dulles. Okay, this is not what the CIA is supposed to be doing. This guy's devoting all his time to covert operations. We're going into countries and we're overthrowing their governments. Okay, almost at will. All right. And so Bobby Kennedy got the Lovett-Bruce Report. And he brought in Robert Lovett to see his brother. Okay. And Robert Lovett said, we wanted to fire Alan Dulles years ago, but we couldn't because his brother was around to protect him. You have the perfect operate, you know, the perfect opportunity to go ahead and fire this guy. And I strongly recommend that you do so. And so Kennedy went further than that. <laughs> he, he not just fired Alan Dulles. He fired Dick Bissell and he fired Charles Cabell. He fired all three of the top. Now, try and find another time in American history that's happened. Okay. He fired all three of them. But that wasn't even enough for Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy called in Dean Russ, the Secretary of State. And he said, he asked him, do we have any other member of the Dulles family in our employee. And he said, yes, we have his sister who works in the State Department, but she's going to retire in about 10 months. He goes, I don't care. I want her fired too. I don't want any member of the Dulles family in this administration. Okay. <laughs> by, by the way, Eleanor Dulles was handling the uh, State Department desk in Germany. <laughs> so she was, she was following an old, like that, uh, Hank Williams Jr. song, an old family tradition. Yes. All right. And, and so they made a clean sweep of it, you know, and like I said, I don't, I can't, I don't know any other time that anything like that has ever happened. All right. Well, it, it, it certainly is unprecedented. And uh, again, emphasizing <clears throat> that Alan Bolas knew but the plan was going to fail, and he figured that JFK would bring in uh, the Marines and the Air Force for a, a standard all-out military invasion. And, and by the way, case. by the way, as other authors have found out, Alan Dulles confessed to that later on. 
Yeah. He was, he was going to write a, an article for Harper's. Okay. And he, the rough draft of this was found at the Princeton Library, which is where Alan Dulles went to college. All right. And I think his name was Lucian Vandebroek. He was a scholar who found these notes and he wrote about it in an, in a periodical, I think called diplomatic history. Alan Dulles says right out. He says words to the effect that we believed that in a time of stress that the president would do what he could to avoid defeat and he would go ahead and call in whatever support the exiles needed. It was words of that effect. He basically said it, that that was his intent. Okay. And so that kind of sealed the deal. You know, anybody who had any doubts about what that was all about, that was, that would put a finish to them. Uh, the, uh, irony in what JFK did, he fired Alan Bellis, he fired Richard Bissell, he fired, uh, General Cabell, and he was talking about splintering the CIA into a thousand pieces and scattering it to the wind. He also talked, he basically described his behavior as decapitating the CIA. And I think that is a grotesque irony in light of what actually happened to JFK, who was literally decapitated and his head was scattered into, if not a thousand pieces, an awful lot of them uh, after uh, the powers that be made their, uh, uh, their play, so to speak. Uh, JFK in Cuba as well. The Cuban Missile Crisis. Tell us about that, what JFK did and the pressures that were brought to bear on him by the Joint Chiefs and others. No, nobody, and like we said this in the film, Nobody really knows why Khrushchev did what he did. All right. No, you can make guesses about it. Okay. You know, maybe he wanted to, uh, negotiate over Berlin, maybe some other subterranean reasons, but nobody knows why he did this. Nobody really knows it for sure. I mean, Kennedy actually thought it was over Berlin, you know, and, but what happened is that Khrushchev went ahead and inserted a very formidable, I think some people would call it a first strike force into Cuba. There were over 100 medium and long range intercontinental ballistic missiles. All right. There was also a bomber force. Okay. And then the third leg of the triad, they had submarines. All right. So you had all three legs of what's called the nuclear triad 90 miles away in Cuba, much too short for any kind of interception, you know, by American forces. And so when Kennedy discovers this from the CIA, he's briefed by their, their photographic analyst, Dino Bergoni. All right. And he then calls a meeting of what was later called the XCOM. All right. 
he learned his lesson from the Bay of Pigs. When he approved the Bay of Pigs, he only had the Joint Chiefs and members of his cabinet and the NSC in there. This time, he insisted on having Bobby Kennedy there and Sorensen, two people that he felt he could trust, all right, during this crisis. And they came through for him, all right? And he, if you read the transcripts, it's in a book called The Kennedy Tapes. If you read the transcripts, it's very clear that JFK is the guy resisting the two kinds of operations that most of the people there wanted to approve, which was, number one, either an airstrike to bomb the silos, okay, or an all-out invasion. Those were the two prevalent options in the first couple of days, all right? And I believe... I believe it was McNamara who brought up the idea of a blockade. And it was this alternative that Kennedy latched onto. Okay. And that, of course, was the least provocative one. All right. Okay. That would essentially stop the Russian ships from bringing in any more weapons. All right. And so, what Kennedy did is he set up what he called a quarantine line, all right? He even had an opportunity, by the way. There were a couple of opportunities he had because one of the Russian ships tried to run the quarantine line and the American ship sent a cannonball over the, the bow of the ship. And then Castro shot down a U-2 over Cuba. See, there were contingency plans if something like this happened. All right, we were supposed to go in and make a strike, okay, against Cuba with our jets. Well, Paul Nitze, who was there, okay, brought this up when Castro shot down the U-2. And Kennedy essentially brushed it off. He brushed it off. All right. And so finally, Khrushchev sent him a message trying to negotiate a way out, okay? And as you know, and as most of your listeners will know, uh, this involved a pledge that the United States would not invade Cuba, number one. And number two, we would remove our missiles from Turkey. And by the way, when this when this came up, Kennedy said words to the effect, we still have those there? Because <laughs> he had ordered them removed. Okay? And, yeah, they're still there. And he goes, okay, fine. We'll make that part of the agreement also. All right? And we were, let me say two very quick comments about this. If we would have launched that invasion that almost everybody wanted to do. Me and you might not be here today because it was not well known at all that the Soviets had given Castro tactical nuclear weapons, a short range one of about 25 miles and a longer range one of about 90 miles. 
And those would have incinerated any kind of invasion force that was coming up to the island. And I believe then Kennedy would have had no choice, you know, but to retaliate because he would have had a hundred thousand people killed, you know. And secondly, Kennedy essentially decided that what he was going to do here, and I'm sure you're aware of this, he was going to work through his brother to solidify the agreement, which he did, okay, with the Russian ambassador in Washington. And so he actually sent his brother over there, okay, to negotiate the final agreement. And in the Russian notes of that meeting, Bobby Kennedy said words of the effect. I don't know how long he can hold on. Okay. Because the Joint Chiefs really want to go to war. All right. So we better hammer this thing out very quickly. All right. And so Lyndon Johnson until the end, and anybody can read this in the Kennedy tapes. He didn't think Kennedy was going, was using enough force or going as far as he should have been. And he actually taunted Kennedy about, oh my God, we're giving up so much with this agreement. We're giving up, you know, like something like, uh, 25 years of, of our Cold War history. You know, people are going to say, you know, what does this agreement do for us? Well, it kind of, Lyndon, it kind of saved two countries. Okay. So that, that's what it did for us. But I have no doubts. I have little or no doubts that if Johnson would have been president at that time, we would have gone to war, you know, and then the coda to this, of course, as you know, is that Castro felt betrayed by the Russians because he was not in on the final uh, negotiations. It was between Khrushchev and Kennedy through their proxies. All right. And so he got a message to one of the lawyers who was running the negotiations for the Bay of Pigs prisoners. And he told Kennedy if he wanted to talk about a rapprochement with Cuba after the missile crisis. And Kennedy said yes. And that was the beginning of this famous back channel. Okay, that most people believe would have resulted in a recognition of Cuba, okay, in the 60s, which we still don't have even today in a new millennium. And we should note, too, that at the very moment, and we, we spoke about this in our long series of interviews about destiny betrayed, uh, at the very moment that Pasco Heard Kennedy was killed, uh, he was meeting with a French journalist, Jean Daniel, who was part of Kennedy's back-channel diplomatic effort to uh, normalize relations. And uh, Castro observed initially, uh, it's bad news. And then later when it, uh, he learned he died, Kennedy that is, uh, Castro very presciently noted that he felt Cuba would probably be blamed for uh, the assassination. And in fact, there were a number of attempts at pinning 
the assassination on either the Soviet Union or Cuba, as we have spoken about. Uh, in connection with uh, the anti-Castro effort, let's go to New Orleans, and I would note that we, we covered Jim Garrison's investigation at great length in our long series of interviews about uh, Destiny Betrayed, uh, but it was in New Orleans, and at the center of the anti-Castro movement, that we heard the Oswald. Remember him? Uh, he is now back from the Soviet Union, and uh, he has become the sole member of the New Orleans chapter for Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, a pro-Castro organization. And there he gets into a contretemps with Carlos Bringier. Now, if you would tell us about Carlos Bringier, the DRE, George Gelanides, and how Gelanides comes up wafer uh, in uh, the narrative. Yes. Um, Carlos Bringier was the, more or less, the de facto chairman of the DRE branch in New Orleans, uh, which is director at Studantel. Okay, and this was one of the most expansive of all the Cuban exile organizations, right? And if you watch what happens to Oswald in the summer of 1963, as you mentioned, he was the only member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The only member in New Orleans. All right. And in fact, he was told by headquarters in New York not to try and construct a branch in the New Orleans area because anybody would understand. Next to Miami, this was probably the hub of the Cuban exile remnants that was left over. Okay. And so it would, wouldn't very make, make very much sense for you to try to organize a group there, but he did. And you can actually see films of this where Oswald is actually leafleting. Okay. Pictures and films on some of the busiest streets in New Orleans and in front of Clay Shaw's international trademark, right? Well, Oswald had tried to kind of befriend Bringier and the DRE earlier that summer. And so when Bringier heard that Oswald was on Canal Street leafleting for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, the exact opposite of what the DRE stood for, he walks over and he gets into a fight with Oswald. And I believe that from what I've read, the only peop the only person who landed a punch was bring air. Okay. Uh Oswald said something, if you want to hit me, hit me, Carlos. But they're both arrested. Oswald goes into the local jail. And if you can believe this, this is one of the most bizarre things about this whole case. Oswald's supposed to be a communist. What does he do? He says, I want to call the FBI. And an FBI agent comes over quickly. And they have a long conversation. Uh, I think at least an hour. So then comes the hearing. What happens? Bring the air 
gets off scot-free, Oswald has to pay a fine. So Oswald is a guy who goes to jail, and he's a guy who pays the fine, even though Bringier is a guy who threw the punch. All right? And so this, of course, then gets Oswald on the radio with people like Bringier, Bill Stuckey, and Ed Butler. Okay? And these guys are all right-wing propagandists, and they bring up the fact that Oswald had been in Russia for another two and a half years to smear him as a communist in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee as a communist front. All right. I'm going to interrupt them very briefly. Uh, veteran listeners to this program have heard that interview on WBS radio a number of times. There is a really interesting gaffe that Oswald makes uh, he is responding, I forgot whether it was Ed Butler or Jim Stuckey, the host, but he is responding to inquiries about his stay in the Soviet Union and his renunciation of his citizenship. And he mentions at all times he was under the protection of, and then he, he, he uh, reverses himself. So that is to say, I was not under the protection of the U.S. government, which... Uh, I, I think it's a State Department. Okay, something like that, yeah. All right, so that, that's a very interesting slip up by Oswald. I'm glad you pointed that out. You can hear it on the tape recording, which you said you've played. All right. Yeah. Now, there's a coda to this. There's a, if you can believe it, it gets worse. We all know, of course, that within a day or two of the assassination, these films and pictures of Oswald get out into the mainstream media and they brand him as a communist. This lonely figure leafleting in New Orleans uh, for Castro, all right? And this brands him a communist in the, in the public eye, all right? But then what we didn't know is something that we didn't find out till many years later. During the days of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was about 1976 to 1978 or 79, they set up an inquiry in which one of the main liaisons between the CIA and the House Select Committee was a guy named George Joannidis. And the committee had a rule that nobody involved in the case, in the Kennedy case, back in 1961 through 63, should have any connections with the committee because they obviously would be biased one way or the other. Well, Jefferson Morley found out something that the committee did not know. Namely, that George Juanides was Richard Helms' man in handling the DRE in 1963. Oh, my God. He's parceling out something like $51,000 a month to these guys, which pays for their broadsheet, which was, I think, printed within 24 hours. And it said, words of the effect, Castro killed Kennedy, and it had a picture of Castro with a picture of Oswald. Okay, that's the first big story on the Kennedy assassination, by the way, paid for by the CIA. So when Jeff Morley found this out 
he asked the chief counsel of the committee at that time. And he said, what kind of relationship did you have with the CIA? And he said, we didn't have any relationship with the CIA. We had a rule that there would be nobody who was operative at that time would be working with the committee or inside the committee. And Jeff Morley said, I've got news for you. George Joannidis, who was a liaison, was running those Cubans that you were supposed to be investigating in the summer of 1963, the DRE in New Orleans. All right. And this, of course, was shocking because, because when the committee called up Joannidis, when he was offered by the CIA the job, they asked him point blank. They said, were you working with anybody involved in the Kennedy case in 1963? And he said, no. What a liar. Okay, and and they should have never trusted him to begin with. Well, that... (laughs) That, as they say, is now history. Very quickly, Jim, we have spoken about this before, but uh, Jefferson Morley, George Joannides, uh Jefferson's FOIA suit, and Brett Kavanaugh. Tell us about that. Yes, this is something that's in the book, JFK Revisited, okay, which we go into, because it's, it's quite interesting. The CIA would not give up all its files on George Joannidis, not even to the review board, okay? They lied to the review board and said, all we have on him is a personnel file. You know, which, you know, what days was he sick? How much was he making? That kind of thing. Well, that's not true, okay? And so Jeff Morley decided to sue the CIA, Freedom of Information Act request. This suit went on for like nine years. The CIA was determined not to give up the mass of these pages, which I believe was 300 pages. All right. And Jeff could only get, I think, about 60 or 70 pages through nine years of work through his lawyer, Jim Lazar. And so every time that Jeff would lose in district court, he would win in the appeals court. All right. And that would put the lawsuit back into play and he would get some tidbits. What happened is that at the last moment, Brett Kavanaugh changed his vote and voted against Morley, which means Jeff lost two to one in the appeals court on the very same day that Brett Kavanaugh cast that vote. Trump floated his name for the Supreme court nomination. As Jeff Morley once said, does anybody in their right mind think that if he knew he was going to be nominated for the Supreme court, that he was going to vote against the CIA? I mean, does anybody really believe that? Okay, and that's what happened to Jeff Moore. And that's why to this day, to this day, this is now 24 years after the review board closed down. We do not have 
the complete file on a very important figure, George Joannidis, who was running the DRE in the summer of 1963. It, it is uh, it is very interesting and sadly, Jim, I think it is only too typical of the way the truth has been mangled in this case. Uh, one of the interesting things, well, you know, there was, a, I think, an executive level meeting of the Warren Commission in January of 1964, and they were discussing whether they should release all of the testimony and exhibits. And later on, we'll talk about how the 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits uh, really disproved the Warren Report proper. But they were asking, you know, if we should uh, basically release this information. And Alan Bellis said, people don't read anymore. Don't think people read. A few professors will read the record. Most people will read very little. I think that comment, not only accurate, but could be something of an epitaph for our civilization. Uh, Jim, with regard to visual events, and I think we are now a visual culture, post-literate might be a term, but the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, for which the aforementioned Joe, uh, George Joannides was the liaison with that committee and uh, between that, the CIA and the committee, that actually the HSCA formed as a result of the television program. And that was uh, Geraldo Rivera. And who did he have on? What did he show? And what was the reaction? The show was called Good Night America. Geraldo Rivera was the host. And he had on that night, which is in the summer of 1975, he had on Bob Groden, a photo analyst, and Dick Gregory, the famous comedian. All right. Bob Groden had a copy of the Zapruder film. He had gotten it from duplicating the original by his boss, Morris Weitzman, who worked for Life magazine. So he had made this copy and he had shown it to maybe three conferences at the time. And it created such a controversy, as you can imagine it would, that the word got back to ABC and Geraldo Rivera. And Geraldo Rivera insisted on showing it to the first time to a national audience. And even though ABC was very reluctant to do this, Rivera said, I will resign and call a press conference tomorrow and let everybody know what you did if we you do not allow me to show this film. Well, ABC backed down. And as anybody who knows who was around as I was and as you were, okay, that showing created a national firestorm okay i mean it was shocking because as groden said as you can see kennedy's body rockets backward in the car and then rivera said where is lee harvey oswald supposed to be well he's supposed to be behind him so it was the exact opposite reaction 
that most people would believe would happen. And this created such a sensation that it launched the second investigation of the Kennedy assassination on the federal level, which was called the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, one of the things that is really striking to me about the Zapruder film itself, you know, as I was reading JFK, the JFK revisited the book, and also watching the, doc, the DVDs, I have a difficult time focusing on analyses of the skull, the various autopsies, the autopsy photographs, the slides that were made of uh, tissue and so forth. This is not to cast aspersions in any way on the presentation or the integrity of the material, but as uh, Dr. Gary Aguilar notes in the film, and this is also in the book, when you see this approval film, Kennedy's head exploded. It was blown all over the back of the limousine. Uh, all over Dealey Plaza. It wasn't just that Kennedy's body was thrown backward. It could not be more obvious that the shot came, the, the, the fatal headshot came from the front. It, it could not have come from the back. And I think uh, Dr. Aguilar absolutely summed up the essence of the importance of the Zapruder film. Uh, the national shock or outrage about that red to the formation of the HSCA, we've spoken about its compromising in many ways. We'll talk as as we develop the information from the documentary in the book about other things. But it was yet another visual event, and that was Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK, and something that was at the very end that led to the formation of the ARRB. Tell us about that. At the end of Oliver's three-hour film, he had what is called a crawl at the end. And the very end of the film, what it said was words of the effect that the files of the last investigation of Kennedy's death, the House Select Committee, are still classified to this day. All right, and he put the dates on there, 76 to 79, which meant, of course, that 12 years later, those files were still classified. This created another sensation, because most people didn't know this. All right, and so they bombarded Washington with phone calls, faxes, telegrams, letters, all right, and Congress was forced to act. And so they created something called the Assassinations Record Review Board, which was a five-person panel that was nominated by the president, the White House, and their job was to get to work and declassify all these documents, which were still in the possession of the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, Secret Service, etc., Right. And the extraordinary thing about the review board is that it had much more power than a Freedom of Information Act would have. Because in a Freedom of Information Act, 
the plaintiff, the person bringing the lawsuit, doesn't have the document. He can only guess at what's in it. But he has to carry the burden of evidence to show why it should be uh, declassified. Plus, plus the Freedom of Information Act does not apply to Congress, okay, or to operational files of the CIA. All right. Now, the review board, the big difference was that they had the document. They had the document right in their hands. And so whatever agency it was, the FBI, the Secret Service, the CIA, they had to prove to the board why it should not be declassified. And this applied, of course, to Congress and all CIA files. All right. And so this made a gigantic difference, which, of course, the CIA and the FBI didn't like. <laughs> and so we were, we, Oliver and I heard a couple of stories from the review board, because we interviewed three employees of the review board for the film, Tom Samalock, John Thunheim, and Doug Horn. And Thunheim tells his story in the film about they put up a document the CI liaison was sitting at the table and Thunheim said words to the effect. Now, what on earth would be the reason for not declassifying this document? Cause he thought it was completely innocuous and the CIA guy is sitting there for about two minutes. Okay. And finally he says, I don't know, but I'll think of something. <laughs> See, this is the kind of arrogance that these guys have. Here's another story. This one was for the FBI. And so they call in the FBI and they do the same thing. They they put a document on the screen and they say, you're going to have to prove to us why we should not declassify that document because we think we should declassify the document. The FBI guy was there with their lawyer. And he's shocked. So he turns to their lawyer and he says, can they really do that? (laughs) The lawyer goes, yes, they can. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that is worth noting, obviously, uh, the body of information about the JFK assassination is enormous. And there are many things uh, that one can say or write about it. There also, as you undoubtedly know, Jim, uh, there is the JFK assassination community is very fractious. There is a lot of, uh, shall we say conflict or dispute among various members. Uh, the documentary JFK revisited and the book focus largely on information that came to light as a result of the ARRB's investigation, their their declassification of documents. So I think that's an important point to make, that that we're not talking about the totality of the JFK assassination, but after Oliver Stone was obliged to wear the scarlet letter of conspiracy theorists, and we talked about the genesis of that term uh, in an earlier interview. In effect, as he put it, 
conspiracy theory becomes conspiracy fact as a result of the information that is presented in the film and uh, as is presented at greater length and the more detail in the book. So the ARRB, what they uncovered is the central focal point of the documentary and the book. And I think that that's a point that we really need to make. We're almost out of time, Jim. Um, why don't we just, just to make sure we get everything in, why don't you tell us first of all about Kennedy's and King.com. Tell us about the documentaries and the book, where people can get them. And uh, then tell us about Black Ops Radio. All right. Kennedysandking.com is the website that I'm the editor for. And I believe it's one of the best, if not the best websites there is. We we review books, films, and we write original articles. And we have news stories there on all four assassinations, not just JFK. All right. I'm a semi-regular on Leno Sanek's show out of Vancouver and a black op radio, which specializes in the assassinations. All right. The book JFK revisited through the looking glass is a compendium of both scripts for the two hour and the four hour version, plus about 200 pages of material from the people we interviewed. And there were 30 of them. Okay. That did not get into the film. Okay. And that's really a, a really great opportunity to learn something. Okay. That's not on the screen. And then the DVD package, which I believe is three discs, uh, the long version, the short version and the commentary by myself and Oliver Stone, uh, which is in HD and Blu-ray. Okay. Um, you can buy that at um, Amazon.com, or you can stream it. You can stream the short version and the long version, but that's not the same as a DVD package because you won't get the commentary. And I, I'm so surprised to say that that DVD package has been in the top 10 of documentary sales at Amazon for the last two months. I think now it's number nine. But it was number one three weeks in a row when it first came out, which I believe is unprecedented for a JFK documentary. Well, it it is, I think, indicative of the importance of the event in uh, people's consciousness. I also want to add, Jim, that I'm doing three one-hour Patreon talks per week. There is so much going on but I can't even come close to covering it, and even though we've been recording two shows a week. So supplementing uh, the uh, well, su- supplementing these talks, although the topics are not directly related, are the Patreon talks. We're also doing bi-weekly Zoom Q&A sessions, and in the not-too-distant future, we'll be featuring the guest appearance of various authors and researchers, including Jim Biagenio. However, this concludes for the record program number 1267. Interview number six with Jim DiGenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 14th of the year 2022. 
Boyfriend, be your premium. This is Dave Emerson saying thanks for listening.